Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Friday morning, the 9th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Fine Gael has surprised the Green Party by objecting to European laws for restoring nature. As the planet melts, Fine Gael MEPs and their European group, the EPP, have walked out of talks and stand accused by the Greens of breaking their commitments on climate change so as to appease farmers opposed to re-wetting land and to win back votes. Look, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that um, I am in any way aligned to Fianna Gael on this, or indeed Sinn Féin. Both have been acting shamefully these last few months and it's coming to crunch point now where they voted against the Nature Restoration Law at committee. There'll be another vote again, again next week and indeed the week after and we'll have to see what they do at that point. But um, I think that what's very, very clear is that these parties are, you know, operating with their eyes closed um, and pretending these, you know, it's a right wing kind of political um, attempt to pretend that nothing needs to change and that we can go on with business as usual when we know that 80 percent of the habitats across Europe are in a bad state. The Greens say Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Fine Gael's right-wing approach, the Greens say, is to ignore how climate change needs to be tackled, close their eyes to the problem and hope to gain electorally, a position supported by all in Fine Gael right up to its leader, Leo Vradker. Well, I mean, I don't agree with the Taoiseach on that at all. Uh, we're, we're completely divergent in our views on that if that is the Taoiseach's view because um, this is critical now and I think younger generations know that it's critical that we get Mm. this right. That's Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly, the chairperson of uh, the Green Party, speaking to me on Tuesday's programme. Now let's speak uh, to one of uh, those right-wing environmental vandals and a Fine Gael Senator, John McGahan, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Are you surprised at how upset the Green Party is with Fine Gael. I'm just surprised at the political, at the over-the-top political rhetoric that I've heard from the Green Party. Uh, a lot of people whom I respect, I have huge respect for Senator Pauline O'Reilly, Deputy Brian Ledden, who I serve with on the Climate Action Committee, and I want to make that clear at the start, but I think this is over-the-top political rhetoric. And <clears throat> let me explain why 
So the first thing is the government absolutely, nearly everyone in the Oireachtas supports the principles of this proposed law. We need a nature restoration law. That's a given. Where the disagreement this is coming this week is there's a disagreement between the proposal from the commission and a parliament level and there's a disagreement uh, and, and, and the proposal coming from the European Council, which I think is much more flexible and much more workable. So that's where the disagreement has come in this week. Right. Um, are you surprised, though, uh, at uh, how offended the Green Party is by the way Fine Gael is reneging on the commitments it believes your party made to tackling climate change? Yeah, a little bit. And I listened back to the uh, interview you did earlier in the week with Senator O'Reilly um, this, uh, last night in preparation for this. And again, I just think it's a kind of a top level political debate of rhetoric. Like when you actually drill down into the facts here, there's still a, there's still a long way to go with the negotiation. So, for example, if you look at the Parliament proposal, uh, which is what we voted against, which is why we're against it, uh, the reason is because the targets are much higher and there's a much more stricter interpretation uh, of the definition of rewetting. So what does that strict definition mean? Well, in theory, as the proposals stand now, it means possibly taking land out of food production. It means as drafted, you could see wind farms or solar farms being slowed down or refused because that would upset the natural nature balance under the current definitions. One target is to have 70% of drained peatlands be restored by 2030, mm-hmm. of which 50% would have to be rewetted. That would involve farmers having to hand over land. That's all under these current definitions. Mm. Even this proposal had difficulty at committee stage. Are, 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 are you suggesting that Fine Gael is taking a, a pragmatic approach to this? Uh, I think so. And by, walking, approach, by walking out of the talks? Uh, well, what I would say about the walking out of the talks, first of all, is that there's 175 MEPs out of 705. So that's 24% of the European Parliament. That's a significant number that have walked out of these talks. However, they have only walked out of the talks at a Parliament level because the Parliament proposal is daft, as far as I believe. We haven't withdrawn from the talks at a Commission level or a European Council level. And that is where that solution is going to be worked out by EPP-led governments. Uh, Ireland are very much a part of that discussion. Fine Gael is not not, uh, negotiating this by choice. It has chosen to walk out of the talks. Uh, it's not Fine Gael. Fine Gael are part of the EPP. Yes, it is Fine Gael. Uh, it's the Fine Gael MEPs yeah, know, who are I've members no of the EPP. Fine Gael has chosen to walk out of the talks, has chosen not to negotiate this. At, at, a, at a parliament level. So the way that this is going to work, and I suppose what's going And by the way, I agree with my Fine Gael colleagues for doing that. I have no issue with that. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because I think it is putting the ball back in the Commission's uh, court to decide that we've kind of railroaded this a little bit. We need to go back to the drawing board and we need to look at what the council are saying. So the point about it is um, the Environment Committee are going to have a final vote on the 15th of June. So assume that passes. It then goes to the full parliament to be voted on. And then a period of negotiation happens, which is called the trialogues, which is the parliament know the standard position, the commission know the standard position, and the council know the standard position. And then that's when negotiation comes into play. That's when the concerns that we have as members of the EPP and Fine Gael have that can be listened to. That's when the concerns of people in the parliament can be listened to. And I think there's still a long way to go in these negotiations. It's certainly not final. It's certainly not fatal. We agree with the whole concept of EU nature restoration, but we need to get it right. And I think we will get it right when that negotiation takes place later this month. Do you uh, agree with the re-wetting targets? Um, Not at the... EU Parliament level, but at the Council level. So if you take the re targets targets um, 
take the rewetting targets at the Parliament level. As I said, the 70% are drained peatlands and 50% rewetted, right? So if you look at the definition then in the council proposal, which is the one I agree with, the latest definition there is the process of changing from a drained peat soil towards a wet soil. So what does that mean in reality? Well, it means that you don't have to flood X amount of land in Ireland. It means that you don't have to take X amount of land off farmers and say this needs to be rewetted. What it does mean is it means raising the water table on areas of a drained peatland, in some cases by maybe four, five, six centimetres. That would make a huge difference. It would restore the peatlands, it would reduce carbon emissions, and it would make it much more flexible at the same time. So that's why the definition of rewetting is better but, at the council level than the parliament level. Right. Uh, so you want uh, to do a bit of rewetting, but not to reach the targets as uh, they've been set. No, no, I disagree with that because the, the heavy lifting, and this is what we're advocating for and what the council position is advocating for, the heavy lifting should uh, in terms of meeting the targets, should absolutely take place and take place on state land. And we can actually do that primarily, nearly all of it, 95% of it on state land, through Bordemola, Quilcha, uh, the likes of those. And if the targets are set correctly and the definitions are right, that provide flexibility for different countries, not just in Ireland, but across the European Union, then that, those targets can absolutely be achieved. So the three things that I think are needed at this stage, I've, I've just mentioned one of them. Mm. One is that the vast majority is on state land. The second one is that the target should be realistic and have a clear understanding and a definition of what restoration is and what we re-wetting is because it's too strict at the parliament level. And the final thing is no farmers should be forced to undertake a land use change. If a farmer wants to re-wet their land, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely voluntary. They should be allowed to do that and they mm. should be properly incentivised. That can happen under the council proposal, but under the parliament proposal, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, what if they don't want to rewet their land? Uh, that's fine. That's uh, totally up to them because we can rewet. We can we can reach our targets under the council level. Uh, vastly, nearly all of it uh, on state land. And as I heard Pauline O'Reilly on your show earlier on in the week, she said, and, <clears throat> and I agree with this statement, is that uh, there are so many agricultural and environmental schemes that farmers are willing to jump on, willing to get involved in. So I'd have no doubt that there will be a lot of people will want to voluntarily rewet re- their land, providing they're, co- they're properly compensated at the same time. Mm, uh, but they don't know uh, what's on the table. They don't know what's being offered. Uh, at this point in time, yes, uh, and that's because we're still in the negotiation process at a European level. I think it would become a lot, lot clearer uh, after the EU Council of Ministers meet on the 20th of June to agree its final position. Right. And it's at that stage we'll know the final position of the Parliament. You don't know what you're going to pay people for abandoning their land? Uh, not at this point, no, not at this point, because we are still going through the negotiation process. So it's kind of still like so, the legislation is going through at the minute. So that is something that has to be teased out. And actually, so but but, but 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 you think you're telling us that farmers will be happy, but you don't know what you're talking about. Well, well, here's the point about it. When but that is what you're saying, isn't it? You're saying farmers are going to be happy, but I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's what well, farm. Yeah. That's what farmers listening are hearing you say now. Uh, no, I disagree. What, what I want to make clear about that, about the, the, the financial aspect of it, and perhaps I, I didn't make myself clear enough earlier about it, apologies, is at the minute, under the Parliament proposal, the money that would be going to farmers is coming from the cap budget that's already set aside for Ireland. So, i.e., let's say we have X amount of money in cap, a percentage of that that's already going to other aspects is going to be taken, is going to be taken off and it's going to be used to compensate farmers in this respect. Uh, what 
we're calling for and what we're saying is leave the cap budget as it is. That's there for itself. And under the EU Council proposal, we should be looking at providing more um, a separate fund to incentivise farmers to do this. So you're not taking money away from the cap. And that is but that hasn't been agreed yet. Because we're in the negotiation process. No, you're not. You've walked out of the negotiation process. No, 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 Michael. You have. No, I said at the very start, we've walked out of the negotiation process at a parliament level. That's absolutely correct. We have not walked out of the negotiation process at the council level, and that's where the real stuff is going to be made. That's where we can actually make the differences to this proposal um, that are going to allow us and everyone else in the EPP across the European Union to support this. So you're factually correct. We've walked out of it at a parliament level, but that's because that proposal, I believe, is daft. I don't think that proposal is workable. And we, as the EPP, and the Fine Gael are still working at a council level to negotiate, to fine-tune it, to make it flexible and to make it work because we all want this to work. We mm. all agree with this. No one's disagreeing with this. Well, we the Green Party this. says you're going to have to do it anyway. Um, it is going to become law uh, and as I outlined, there are still going to be the negotiation process between the Parliament, the Commission and the Council. But what we are working really, really bloody hard to do now is to make sure that that flexibility is being introduced at the council level and then that will become part of the overall law. And that's what we're, I think that's what we're really trying to or, do. Or, or, or you'll block it. I, I don't think it'll be any case about blocking it because, look, the politics in everything with life is about compromise. It's about meeting each other halfway. You start in one position, I start in another. You're, you're, you, the, the, the Green Party are, are saying you're going to have to re-wet 70% of drain peatlands by 2050. Are you going to do that? Um, under the Parliament proposal, that's what's wanted. Whereas under the Council proposal... and this The is Green Party is saying now. that you're going to have to do that is Fine Gael going to do that? I think that can be achieved under the council proposal. And that can be achieved because you can bring into it, it I suppose it widens the definition of where that can be done, like on forestry, former peat extraction, uh, sorry, extraction sites, other drained peatlands. That allows the flexibility. First of all, that allows for that to be nearly achieved all on state Okay. Well, well, this is really going to come to a head over the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's a vote next week and the week after. Uh, two votes next week, one in committee, uh, and then uh, the Parliament will vote, uh, and then there'll be a, another vote the week after. So uh, is law going to be introduced that 70% of drained peatland will be re-wetted by 2050? Um, yes. I think that I, I uh, sorry apologies I think that is uh I think that is uh, going to be the case but the difference is we're going to what we want to do and what the council want to do is widen the definitions widen the scope so that those targets can be met nearly all of them can be met on state owned land so you're not forcing farmers or people involved in agriculture to hand over land, no. away from food production, away from agricultural production. I, 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 I'm not sure that that's possible. Uh, I think the hope is uh, that farmers will volunteer uh, because they'll be compensated, but nobody knows what that means. Nobody can show their hand uh, on this. They can't put yeah. something on the table. This is not a, a tangible proposal. Yeah, so the point is, in terms of... So, so the, the proposal, as we said, is still being worked out, and we're working really hard uh, as part of Fine Gael and as part of the EPP at a council level to make sure that proposal, as you said, is tangible and that it is makes sense and that it's attractive and people are incentivised to take it up in a voluntary capacity. Um, but what I'm saying to you is that 
let, I'm, I'm just picking a figure here, don't quote me on it as such, but let's say, for example, 90, 90% or 95% of the targets could be achieved on state land by 2030. With the wider definitions, that's a real possibility. That would only require maybe 5 to 10% of farmers who voluntarily want to do it because they're going to be properly mm. uh, financed, they're going to be properly resourced. And what if their neighbours don't want them to do it? Land. Well, that's completely up to their neighbours. You know, this is, uh, this is if you own X amount of land or if you own a square of this portion and if you want to rewet it, and you own it, and you're mm. going to be properly financially okay. rewarded for it, you're entitled to do that. Okay, and uh, if you proceed with this, will it cost you votes? Um, I don't, I, do you know what, like, I know this is kind of bandied about, like, oh, you're doing this for votes, or people are doing that for votes, and there's elections for European Parliament next year. I think, um, I think the difference really is that it's about getting this right. It's about making this flexible at whatever stage of the electoral cycle, whether it's the day before an election mm. or the day after an election. It's about getting this right. And it's really about making sure that this is flexible for farmers. And the final thing about it is, and I'm conscientious of this, like I'm from the middle of Dundalk. I live in the middle of town. I'm not from an agricultural background. A lot of the conversation about this is from people that, uh, you know, like me, that are looking at this and you know, farmers who are the custodians of the land, who know it better than anybody else, they've been really excluded from a lot of this debate because this has been railroaded from an EU commission straight into the parliament. And my colleague Colin Markey, MEP, at the Agricultural Committee earlier in this week in the European Parliament mentioned to Commissioner Tinnerman that this is the first time we have seen you about this in three years in our committee. So that just shows you that the people really who should be at the forefront about this, which is members of our farming community or agricultural okay. community, um, they're not being So Mairead McGuinness has let Fine Gael and Irish farmers down, has she? In what sense? <laughs> in that she's railroaded this law in. Is that not what you just said a moment ago? Uh, I think the EU Commission has done that. I wouldn't say that about Mairead, though. Mairead has been well, no, outstanding... Her- Hold on, you, you, you cannot uh, exempt somebody from a statement like that. The Commission, like the government, makes decisions collectively. Uh, and uh, uh, and Mairead McGuinness uh, is on the record uh, as defending and supporting uh, the Commission's position on this. So, uh, given that that is a fact, are you saying that F- Mairead McGuinness has let Fine Gael and Irish farmers down? No, absolutely not. Why not? I wouldn't even... I wouldn't you even say, but you're saying the Commission is? Uh, I think Commissioner Timmerman certainly is. Ah, sir, so you're talking now to both sides of your mouth. Uh, no, no, no. Of course no, you not. are. No, You cannot say not. one Commissioner is letting Fine Gael and Irish farmers down and another Commissioner isn't because they happen to be a member of Fine Gael. Uh, what I am saying is that Commissioner Timmerman, I feel, uh, and this has been, if you look at the transcripts of the EU Agricultural Committee, you would see this, this has been said, not just by Finnegan MEPs, but MEPs right across the European Union. Yeah, you're wasn't a, you're a at odds with Mairead McGuinness on this. Sorry, Michael? You, you are at odds with Mairead McGuinness on this. Um, I Mairead, McGuinness, here, Mairead McGuinness is in line with Commissioner Timmerman. Okay, so what I would say about that is, and I, I kind of said it earlier on in the show about this, is there is still a long way to go with this negotiation. You outlined yourself that there's going to be a whole trilogue of debate uh, between the European Parliament, between the Commission, between the Commission and between um, 
the European Council. Uh, and once that happens, I think compromise will come along here. I think sensibility will come, be, come along here. And I think a solution will be found. Okay. And I think the genuine concerns that I have in a national context that Ireland has, that Fine Gael has, that the EPP has across the European Union, okay. I think that will be considered and taken on board. But All to right. be clear, there's a long way to go in negotiations, but we can certainly get this law right and we can make it work for everyone. I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on Thanks, the programme today. That is Fine Gael Senator John McGann. Michael at lmfm.ie President of uh, the ICMSA Good morning to you Pat and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. We are going to talk about uh, Tesco's announcement yesterday to reduce uh, the prices on 700 products and if others will follow will that be a supermarket price war as a result and if farmers will pay but uh, apologies we're late coming to you because we got caught up speaking to Fine Gael uh, about re-wetting and uh, European nature restoration law and uh, perhaps I I could uh, take up on the last interview where we left off on that on that subject with you which I I know you're deeply concerned about. I was asking Fine Gael Senator John McGahan if he felt Commissioner Mairead McGuinness had let down Fine Gael and Irish farmers because of her support for this law. What are your thoughts on that? Has the Commissioner let farmers down? Well, you know, I think, <clears throat> I suppose, on this occasion, um, she may have been better positioned uh, to be to be more uh, of an advocate against um, against re uh, um and the Nature Restoration Act. Uh, obviously, she has had a long history with agriculture and, and has served agriculture well. But you know, we've huge concerns about re-wetting um, and the, the Nature Restoration Law because. You see it there in the Midlands at the moment, um, you know, Bordemona are obviously rewetting and they talk about no impact on adjoining holdings and, you know, they guarantee that if anything happens, they'll put it right, but they won't put that guarantee in writing. And um, that is a huge concern and in the same way, I suppose, the Nature Restoration Act. And, you know, it's at a time when we have mm-hmm. a growing population, we have a, bit, we, we have a food uh, security issue in, in, in Europe. We see ourselves importing beef from Brazil um, as as a result um, of not being able to be self-sufficient in Europe. Um, so, you know, where are we going to go in five, ten years' time mm. if we reduce the area by 4%, 5%, 6%, 8%? Mm. Um, it's huge concern at this point in time as we approach 2050 from a food security perspective. Okay. Uh, and the Fittigale MP- MEPs have walked out of uh, the talks, uh, of course, uh, before that happened, Michael Healy Ray told uh, the Taoiseach uh, that the support the government was giving for this law would result in a situation where farmers would rather get the bubonic plague than vote Fine Gael in uh, the next local uh, elections. I- is he right? And has Fine Gael's U-turn done anything to turn that around? Well, look, at I suppose the government, and it's unusual that in my lifetime, we've never had a Fine Gael, Fine Fáil government. Traditionally, in my lifetime, one was in government and the other was the main party in opposition. Um, at this point in time, both are in government and they find themselves with a minority party um, who who are very much environmentally um, orientated. And uh, certainly I have, as a representative of ICMSA, attended the main political parties, public meetings that they've invited us to. And, um, you know, they are getting it in the neck from their own people on the ground. Uh, and there's no point in saying otherwise. I remember going to a meeting there in March in Mitchelstown. And, um, you know, I was amazed 
like the, the turmoil or the, the thankfully the, the independence I should call it thankfully mm. uh, of some people grassroots members who are certainly even um, the people in a position of influence uh, know the facts of what was happening to people on the ground um, you know I suppose Poland is is getting closer and uh, you know people will be judged on what they do obviously locally but what's very important is what they do collectively um, when they head for Dáileán Okay, listen, Pat. Uh, I'm sorry for springing that on you. We weren't scheduled to talk about that at all, but it would have seemed odd not to have asked you about it, given the last conversation we had before you came on. Uh, right, let, let's talk about Tesco. Uh, I mean, God, what marketing! You couldn't buy the advertising that Tesco got yesterday. People are, are delighted. Uh, the cost of groceries has been through the roof. But you're concerned. Yeah, you usually concerned, you know, because we sit at various forums around the country. Um, where they talk about sustainability. And when I mean forums, forums that include the large retailers, uh, they're talking about reducing packaging, they're talking about sustainability, they're talking about environmental sustainability and social sustainability, but they forget that for those to happen, we need to have economic sustainability. And if you look back at the history of the last 15, 20 years, in, in, in my memory anyway, um, certainly when there was a price war or when they, when they cut prices, it was, it was passed on. Um, they maintain their level of margin and they pass it on to the, pro- the processor and ultimately to the primary producer. And, um, you know, we have a huge fear of that because at this point in time, costs are an unprecedented high mm. um, out there on farms, so it is for dairy or beef. Uh, and, you know, 2023 is going to be a hugely challenging year to keep the bills paid. And for a, a retail outlet, any of them or all of them, uh, to enter uh, a price war. Uh, while it's good for the consumer in the short term, it may not be good for them in the long term because there may not be, you know, Irish food produced all year round, uh, whether that's dairy or beef, uh, in the long term if, if the economic sustainability isn't there. And, uh, you know, we believe that it's not a prudent, it's not a prudent move uh, and, you know, that it's, it highlights, I suppose, the whole concept of sustainability is it that the retailer wants to be seen to be doing something on packaging, irrespective of what they do to the primary producer? Mm. Uh, explain to us, uh, if you can, because I think it's a mystery to a lot of people. This is your produce um, and you sell it. Why do farmers not set the price and how do supermarkets manage to dictate the price? Oh, that's a good question, Michael. Have we the, have we the week? <laughs> you want to ask okay. them Monday morning? Mm. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go but it seems crazy that farmers are producing uh, for next to nothing, if not at a loss at times. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a. It's a very. I suppose the one thing I would say about farming in general is that it's it's long term. It's it's very much a long term uh, industry to get into, and um, you know, I suppose you can't exit in at at, at the, the whimp of a. For the battle of an, eye, an eyelid, um, but what I would say is, you know, unusually for milk, with the first day of June you produce milk and you find out the 18th or 20th of July what you've received for it. Now, in general, the dairy industry is governed by the co-op eaters uh, and those farmers on the boards who help dictate the price of milk. And I don't say dictate the price of milk; I say help dictate the price of milk. From a beef perspective, then obviously we're, we're very different in that our processes are a private commercial business families and men and into this and uh, they will buy on a supply and demand basis mm. and uh, you know we've seen in the last couple of weeks with the drought beginning to bite we've seen factories pull the price of beef 
and uh, you know farmers would have envisaged maybe getting five twenty a kilo, uh, five thirty, five forty a kilo, and they might find themselves back at four ninety a kilo. So, you know that's that's usually frustrating. Um, you know, and I suppose we have become price takers rather than price setters. Mm. And uh, you know how that's reversed is, is going to be a difficult challenge. Um, when food is scarce and when market sentiment dictates that there's a scarcity, and I've no doubt that will come in the next number of months, given the, the drought that mm. has been experienced, um, it, it can be positive. But when there's any sniff uh, of, a, of a strong supply, I won't even say an oversupply, but a strong supply, um, it, prices are pulled, and we've seen that over the last 15 years as well. Okay. Pat, I have to leave there. Many thanks for joining us on the programme today. Pat McCormick is uh, the president of M.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Somebody texting us saying, no harm to you, but McGann talks pure bull, typical Fine Gael, blame everybody but themselves. That's Eamon O'Party, actually, who sends that to us. Thanks, Eamon, as always, uh, for your message uh, to the programme. Uh, another text from somebody who says uh, the Greens are proving to be toxic when it comes to transfers. They'll be annihilated in the next general election. Uh, another t- uh, comment from Sean, who says, why is Ireland paying one and a half million euro for not taking in refugees if we don't have the room to take them in. Is this like a fine for not doing something that is impossible to do? Is it not like asking us to put square pegs into round holes? And furthermore, it looks like it's going to get worse. Did I hear that the next plan is to charge €20,000 for every person we refuse entry into Ireland? How much is this going to cost? Please explain this for me. Well, thank you indeed. Uh, it's uh, quite uh, simple in that uh, we've obligations. Uh, we've signed up uh, to taking people under a solidarity pact. These are people who are starving from starvation, who are fleeing from torture, execution, war, bullets, bullets, bombs, tanks uh, and uh, the sort of of, uh, thing uh, that we don't wake up to when we're eating our cornflakes. But you're you're right, um, the fines will get worse. Uh, The government has said uh, we can't fulfil our obligations and has thrown the towel in uh, in respect of the 350 people that this one and a half million is meant to compensate countries that are overrun with refugees, places like Greece and Italy. The idea was to take the pressure off them. And it's a paltry sum of money, that one and a half million. Uh, When you look at uh, the one and a half million, um, that breaks down uh, we did a calculation on this, by the way, uh, to just over 4,000, 4,285 euro per person. I don't know how long that person is going to live, uh, be housed uh, and uh, supported in Greece or wherever it is uh, that they end up. Uh, but if we're charged 20,000 and the caller is right um, to say that, uh, if it was 350 people, which is uh, the people that we're refusing entry to now, uh, because uh, we don't have the wherewithal, we don't have the means to open up these empty buildings and give people some sanctuaries from some of the most terrible things happening in the world. We just can't do that. We're saying, let Greece do it. Uh, so if we were to pay 20,000 for the 350 people, uh, instead of it being one and a half million, it would be seven million. 
uh, it's 20,000 instead of 4,000 per person, uh, 7 million instead of 1.5 million, and perhaps uh, the government is looking on this as a, a good deal. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I heard a comment yesterday about it being shameful, um, a total failure on the part of uh, the government to look after the most vulnerable people in the world uh, and uh, something that paints uh, the country in a, a very poor light, given the pressure that is already on countries that have nowhere near the means that this very, very wealthy country has. And we're turning people away saying, here's a few quid, and it really is only a few quid, one and a half million instead of seven million, 4,000 a person instead of 20,000 a person, a few quid to these very uh, poor countries relative uh, to Ireland uh, to take people in and do our work for us. Anyway, uh, that's uh, one way of explaining it. I'm sure other people will have a different way of explaining it. But thank you indeed uh, for your text. Our telephone number, if you want to make comment on the programme today, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. 086-1800-658. Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. I love how... Or re-wetting uh, that leaves farmers feeling isolated. Uh, according to Independent uh, TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, who has been speaking to up to 25 councillors about the prospect of forming a new political party. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme once uh, again. Uh, you say that people in rural Ireland need to come together to unite or there will be even more trouble. You know, first of all, Michael, we saw last week, um, good morning to your listeners, and we saw last week, leaked document once again, and I keep on about this, this um, the one thing you need is certainty in life or certainty in going forward in business, and for the agricultural sector especially, um, last week a document, 200,000 cows to be called, then was denied, and this is constant, constant feed and drip feed of stuff like that. Mm. Coming out in the media... Um, and no more than last night um, on the nature restoration law, uh, the bureaucrats in Europe decided then that they'd try and throw in money to bring people back on board. Um, uh, and I, money doesn't solve every problem. Uh, but this, if this keeps going the way it's going, it, well, it first of all does, it demoralizes people. It doesn't give them a clear pathway forward. And... Um, the different winds of change and the different forces that's coming at uh, the rural people and indeed um, the agricultural sector, um, if there isn't a coherent group there that will basically stand up for them and, and stop some of this madness that's going on. But, yeah, but just one second, Michael. I mean, is it not true to say that if uh, you formed this party and you did very well in the next elections and you became uh, one of uh, the parties in government, that that government might make the ESRI uh, or ask the ESRI uh, to look at, at what options it, uh, the government has for reducing uh, emissions? And you'd get the same report, but you wouldn't take that option because that's what the government is saying. This is just one of the options that's been presented to them. Well, the first thing is, Michael, um, you shouldn't be leaking documents that are frightening the daylight such people. Uh, second of all, um, there are ways you can reach your 
you know, achieve your targets, uh, but lead a clear pathway out ahead. Right, I'll give you an example. And I said this time and time again. If every farmer up to 50 acres has to plant an acre or three, they do along the ditches or in shelter belts or whatever way you want to do it. It ticks the box for climate, but it also leaves the farmer farming normal. This is seeing something that is workable. Not telling someone that they have to re-waste or, re- or plant uh, their land or have some, say, conglomerate coming in beside them buying up every single acre. Things can be achieved. It's how you go about achieving it and understanding from where you're from. Because there's no point, you know, and I say this time and time again, Michael Fitzmaurice has no business talking about inner city Dublin because I don't know enough about it. I don't know how those people live, their way of life, their tradition. But there's a lot of people from the leafy suburbs talking about rural Ireland and the agricultural sector and what's good for them. And that's the buzz iota of how they live, how we survive, and our traditions, our heritage, and our way of life. Mm. Um, does that include the EU Commission? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but I, uh, there, there is, you know, ideas floated by bureaucrats um, that needs, and that's why you have mm. MEPs that should actually stand up for the right or the right of their local people and voice their concerns. Okay, and but I'm sure that you'd worry, agree. Worry, yeah, but the worrying part of this is that if someone has a different voice, and I know in fairness to the EPP to pull out the talks yeah. last week or the week before, and if you see yesterday an MEP that's 17 years in the parliament stating that it is concerning that um, a red line was crossed and that the EU or the people on the other side of this argument were throwing money to get people's votes changed in the line of lobbying. Um, that's a worrying a worrying statement from an MEP that obviously from what we read in the paper was 17 years there. Mm. So it's either my way or no way, or my way or the highway. That's not the way it should work because everyone... No matter where you are, be you living in a city, town, or in the rural area, um, deserves to get the best representation possible. Right. Um, I think you'll agree that there is one member of the European Commission who knows quite a lot about rural Ireland and farming in this country, Mairead McGuinness. Um, earlier in the programme, I asked uh, Fine Gael Senator John McGann uh, if he felt uh, that Mairead McGuinness had left Fine Gael and Irish farmers down. Uh, he said no, but he felt that Franz Timmermans had uh, let Fine Gael and Irish farmers down. Pat McCormick of the ICMSA said he felt the Commissioner has let farmers down. Uh, do you believe that the Commissioner, Commissioner McGuinness, has let farmers down? The question is, this is the problem. Um, Commissioner McGuinness as as a commissioner, obviously, in Europe. They, they toe the line because that's the, that's the job they're in. And in my opinion, um, some people, because of the jobs they're at, won't call a spade a spade straight out and say, this is bad for X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think that's a big problem because you need to call it out straight. You know, this political correctness of being, if you're a commissioner or if you're an MEP or if you're a GD or whatever, and there's always, oh, well, you can't say there's, you can't, this wouldn't look good, the climate debate or whatever. They call it straight. And if there's something not good for people, it's not good for people. That's it. Mm. Uh, 
there's uh, very little clout uh, in terms of uh, the Irish influence uh, on uh, whether this law is. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Introduced as proposed or, or not. Uh, if... Uh, it becomes law, um, well, that's just the way. Uh, there's nothing that Ireland can do about it, regardless of who is in government. Isn't that right? Well, not this resort. Um, you can also look at the implementation of something. Um, and, you know, it's like the Habitat Directive, when it came to Ireland, we were told, and the people from rural Ireland were told, look, if you want to take you to one, to one thing, 36 different um, notifications or... Uh, you, you have to get accreditation or to go ahead to go to do work on your lands at the moment. That wasn't in 20 years ago. And the danger is that if you let something in the door, uh, it gets worse and worse. And the other part about this is the European Union, the ECJ's interpretation of certain directives is majorly problematic. But the bottom line on it is, I'll be very clear on this, as a Council of Ministers, um, if you're in the Council of Ministers, you can veto or object to uh, legislation coming in. And that's it. And in my opinion, we need to stand up and get gutsy out there. Mm. And uh, by that, you mean forming uh, this uh, party. Uh, 25 councillors are in talks well, with you? Was, well, let's say there was there's at least 25 councillors with yeah. a family. Um, ordinary people from farming background, from business background, um, have rang with an interest. And the more you talk to people, be them in Wicklow or be them in Donegal or be them in any parts of the country, their problem is my problem and my problem is their problem. Hmm. Common denomination because rural Ireland isn't a, you know, you don't have to have high-tech policies to, um, you know, solve some of the problems. And clear pathways and, and and a clear way where we're going forward it's ferociously important. And at the moment, there's a lull because there's a fear of not knowing at the moment. And that is a bad, bad situation. Right. Um, you'll be standing 
candidates. I, I take it that's your hope, at least. Uh, in the first thing is, Michael, let's call it before we walk. Yeah. I said the first thing we have to do, there is people at the moment, voluntary, um, from different backgrounds, putting, say, different types of pilots yep. together. That could go out, you know, that could be there for different people the content to be to look at. Some might mm. be, some might be, some could say, no, no, address this. And after that, then we'll see where we're going. Simple right. as that. Okay. But it is my view, that may be very clear, it is my view that if we don't give an alternative to and a voice to those people that, that feel disaffected at the moment, um, there is, in my my opinion, a tough day is it. Okay, you, you'd hope though that uh, you could come together with the people that you're talking to and maybe others uh, under one banner and field candidates in the local elections. What about the European elections? Would you have any ambitions uh, in that sense Michael, yourself? Let's, no? let's be clear on this. The field candidates, no election for your register to go. And as I say in the article, over the next, um, if there was an election in three or six months' time, you wouldn't be ready for anything. What has to happen first is we put the piece of the jigsaw together. Mm. Let's see then for both locals and for the, the, the Europeans or for any election hmm. of people. And let's see how it goes over the coming six months. OK, but at this stage you don't have aspirations yourself to stand in the European elections? No, I never said I did. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't <laughs> think there's any point in asking you a third time, is there? <laughs> I, I, all right, sir, give it very clear to make it. And as clear as people, well, the people will be very clear on this. I pulled my hair out many a time here. I don't think I'd ever rip left if I went to Europe, so I'd to stay away from there. <laughs> okay. All right, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us. I appreciate that, Michael. Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Ross Common Galway. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments. Martin Don in touch with us, uh, WhatsApping us uh, this morning, uh, asking uh, about um, refugees coming to this country. If you were listening earlier on, I was mentioning the fact that uh, many of the people who are seeking refuge, who are looking for international protection in this country, are fleeing from terrible parts parts of the world uh, where there's all sorts of problems, starvation, execution, torture, wars, all that sort of thing. He says, how on earth do you know that? What are you on about? He's he's saying, more or less. Uh, He says, have I vetted them? Um, uh, Martin, that's a stupid question, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, Can you send me uh, your birth cert? Um, uh, All the jobs you've had and um, uh, let's see, what else do I need to know? Uh, any criminal uh, record that you have, um, if uh, every address you've had, every job you've had, and, um, and then I'll answer your question, because I'd like to vet you. You know what I mean? Um, I, I tell you, there's uh, some things about my past that maybe you don't know, and maybe my neighbours don't know, but they haven't vetted me. Should they have vetted me? Hmm. Maybe we'll vet Martin. Martin, send us in your birth cert, um, any uh, criminal record that you have, um, if you have any. Uh, maybe you don't. I, I, I don't know. I presume you don't. I presume you're an upstanding, decent person. Um, I presume you're a charitable person. Um, and I presume you're a hospitable person. I presume you're the type of person uh, who would say, good God, look at those people in Ukraine at the moment. Um, Not only are they waking up to bombs and bullets and tanks and planes and all of that sort of stuff, uh, but now uh, their houses are underwater. Uh, We see that every day on the telly. 
Um, there's lots of other things happening in the world, Martin, that we don't see every day on the telly just because we don't have interest for some reason. But there's terrible, terrible things happening in the world. And that's um, why people are on the move. That's why they're fleeing. I mean, if you take somebody who interpreted for uh, the Americans uh, in Afghanistan, the Taliban just want to kill them now. Um, would you stay, whether you were a man of military age or anything like that? Um, uh, if you vetted those people, you'd find that there are upstanding people uh, who worked um, for one of the countries from the Western world to help them uh, in, in that country, only for those countries to pull out, leave them abandoned, uh, leave them at the hands of the Taliban uh, who want to kill them. Uh, wouldn't you flee? I know I'd be gone in a shot. Um, so anyway, as I say, send us in the the, the passport. Yeah, send us your, have you got your passport, Martin? Send us your passport, your birth cert, uh, any fines uh, or um, uh, evidence of criminality or anything like that, if you have been involved in anything. Um, every address you've had, every job you've had, um, your hobbies and um, your sexual preferences if you wouldn't mind. And then we'll answer all the questions because we'll uh, run a check on you and uh, see what kind of person you are. Um, just, I'm, I am being facetious, Martin, and I, I'm sorry, but um, there's times when you just have to say, look, there's a system in place for looking at this. These Don't mind what you're reading on the internet. There's a system in place for looking at people. They have a right to come here. They are following uh, the legal process for coming here. We have an obligation and a legal obligation at that to accept these people, to look at their situation, to vet them, if you like. And they are being vetted. They are all, they're all being vetted. And if they are not entitled to asylum, they'll be deported. We're one of, we're, there's few countries in Europe who deport more people than Ireland. Uh, all of this stuff on the internet is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, I'm sorry, I just... I don't know, maybe it's uh, the mood. Uh, you caught me in, a, in the wrong mood, Martin. Um, I, I, I don't mean to insult you personally. Um, we get lots of messages like this all of the time and I, I don't respond. Uh, and uh, it's unfortunate that I've responded to your message that way. But uh, thanks, listen, and I do mean it. Thanks uh, for making contact. If you want to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. 236 children are experiencing poverty in uh, this country. Uh, I don't know, is that a, a lot of people? Um, apparently it's uh, the equivalent of the population of Kilkenny and Waterford combined. I guess that's a lot of people, isn't it? Uh, it's a very wealthy country. Hard to think um, that there would be so many people living in poverty, let alone so many children living in poverty. Tanya Ward is uh, the CEO of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Tanya, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose some level of poverty is inevitable, is it not? Yeah, but not not the scale, I think, that we're experiencing in, in Ireland. And look, there's, there's other countries at the same level of wealth um, and they don't have the same level of, of poverty. And the truth is, poverty isn't inevitable. It is the result of decisions that, that we've made. I mean, a lot of people who are, are living in poverty, um, they don't have control over the situation. So mm. they might be paying very high rent. 
Um, they, they might be in a low paid job and it's very hard to change your situation when you're, you're in those uh, you're in that type of situation yeah. I, I heard you say at the launch yesterday that poverty is not uh, inevitable and I guess that's what I, I was thinking in asking you the question because you've just said there that we're deciding to do this this is a decision that we're making consciously or is it subconsciously made do you think I think I think to some degree it is subconscious, and, and why do I think that? I think that for a lot of politicians, you know, people experiencing poverty, they're not on the airwaves. You know, they're not ringing in live line to talk about what they're going through. Uh, you know, people live with a lot of shame when when they're in poverty because they they feel it's sometimes a personal failure, or maybe other people look upon them that it's, it's a personal failure, and, and it absolutely isn't. Um, I, well, we, we know when we talk to families that are going through this, like they, they'll often try and not reveal to other members of their family, or and actually people in their community. It's the same for children as well. You know, if they're asked to go to a birthday party and they don't want to put their parents under pressure to buy a present, you know, they'll just say that they're not around. Or if it's a teenager, we've heard them talk about how they won't go to the cinema with their other pals because they can't afford it, but they'll just tell people that they're, that they're not available. So mm. I, I think I, I think when it comes to really addressing poverty, because people don't speak about it, uh, they're, they're, we, we, we don't realise really what they're going through. Um, it's really down to the politicians to really step forward and put the measures in place to end it. Mm. Um, why don't they do that? Uh, another group, Bernardo's, had a survey recently or a research recently um, that they published uh, they were talking about uh, children going without new shoes and all that sort of thing but going to school in the morning without a, a lunch uh, having nothing to eat till they come home in the evening uh, I'm sure um, that's the kind of situation uh, people are in that you're talking about uh, how, yeah. how can that be in this country in this day and age? I mean, it, it starts very much with the, just the very basics, like it, that people just don't have the income they need to deal with the, the basic essentials. And if you think about it, you know, this, this, these are people who would be, let's say, on maybe welfare, maybe they're in training, mm. uh, maybe they're in a low-paid job, or maybe they're paying very high rents, because this is the other thing. If you're paying two grand a month for your two-bedroom apartment, that's going to wipe out much of, of an income. And yeah, so in other countries, there's, you know, they don't have issues with the, with the cost of living or they don't have issues, let's say, with the price of rent. But I think one of the things that we probably have neglected over the years, and you, you see some attempts to address that by government now, in other countries, a lot of your services were free yeah. or they were, you know, mostly funded by the state. So, you know, in France, hot school meals as part of the school day, uh, north of the border as part of the school day, free school books. You know, it's, mm. they're free in they're free in the north, free in most of, of Europe as well. So I suppose parents are, in Ireland have been paying out a lot more than they would in other countries. And I suppose mm. you know we can address this very easily by making all these services universal. Every child is going to benefit, but of course the, the child living in poverty will, will benefit. We most. could, but as you say, we're deciding not to. Um, is it down to the politicians or is it down to the people who vote for the politicians? Uh, because I think a lot of people think that this idea coming from Fine Gael, that they would put a, a thousand euro back into the pockets of people earning up to 52,000 euro a year, which is the equivalent of 20 euro a, a week, uh, is uh, to buy votes. 
Um, uh, but they're not uh, buying the votes of the type of people that you're talking about. They don't earn up to fifty thousand, two thousand euro a year. Yeah, and I, and I, I think actually most people in that even that income bracket probably wouldn't be too pushed with an extra twenty euros a week if it meant, let's say, they could guarantee their mother wouldn't be sitting on the trolley in a, in, a, in an emergency room, or mm. they could get free access to a, a GP. You know, and it's it, it's a funny thing because like you know the Taoiseach has established a unit in his department uh, in in just this year, and it's now operational, and it's going to look at how what kind of measures could we put in place that could really change the dial when it comes to poverty. Um, I mean, I I, th- I think. The, the big answer here is definitely the politicians stepping forward, coming up with the big ideas that are going to make the difference. And we know from other countries what they are. So, mm. you know, you start early, you make sure that uh, any child, a marginalised child in particular, has access to good quality early years education. It's the big equaliser, you know, because a lot of children, they're arriving in primary school and they don't have the same, you know, language and skills that yeah. other children mm-hmm. who are much more well off um, have. So you need to start at the very beginning. Um, I mean, I think it's. It, I, I do think there's a real recognition, let's say, at a government level, that things like hot school meals actually are really work. And I see now. I see the minister, Minister Humphreys, really going for that, and I see a lot of buy-in from from the politicians. So. I do think that there is there is an, a political will that's really emerging on on the on the poverty front. To be mm. honest, good. But so mm. one of the things that you know that we have to see though is this is not going to be a one year issue, a two year. We're going to have to see politicians step forward for the next ten years mm. if we want to get that you know the the population of Waterford, the population of mm. Kilkenny, if we want to get that number of children out of poverty. Uh, and uh, what the long-term consequences are if we don't do it today and in the coming years. Speaking of other countries, you had a representative from the OECD with you yesterday who spoke uh, about what seems to be a societal question and how this impacts on children today in their older years, that it ends up alienating them and they become disconnected from society. Yeah, and, and one of the things that really gets me, I think, as a child, a, a child a, 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 an anti-poverty campaigner and a, a children's rights advocate is, I know from all the studies that have been done, uh, the impact on, on the emotional well-being of, of children when they live through this, particularly, you know, when it's not just the parent loses the job and, and the parent gets a job, you know, two or three months later, when children are living through this for a long period of time, has a big effect on how they think about themselves and their emotional well-being and they're more likely to develop uh, a poor self-concept and a poor view of what's possible for them you know that the, the, the world isn't full of potential the, the world is full of difficulty and problems and you know they, they essentially lose hope and, and they've shown that when children are living through poverty particularly you know as infants and toddlers and, and small children and people often don't realise this, that, you know, when particularly when you're going through in your early years, you're, you're more likely to have a very negative view about what's possible into the future. And I suppose if you look anyway, just more generally, at what's the future hold for you when you live through poverty? Well, you're going to have a shorter life. You're more likely to get uh, cancer and, and other serious illnesses. You're more likely to have a poor mental health and live in poor accommodation. And the chances are, your your if you have children, your own children will. will this is the kind of future uh, that they're going to have, and mm. it doesn't have to be this way. You know, the kind of measures that are tried and tested in other countries 
if we implement them here, we can change all that. Yeah, it doesn't need to be this way, consciously or subconsciously. They're the decisions we're making. Tanya, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Tanya Ward is uh, the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Figures. Western Motors M1 Retail Park Drogheda. Your Volkswagen Louth dealer. 086-1800-658. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, as you know, Harry Styles is playing in Slane tomorrow. Um, just check uh, the text uh, machine. God, um, we've text uh, from Deirdre and Kells, Betty Daly, Tom and Navin, Paddy Duffy, Eamon O'Party. Harry who, they say? <laughs> Harry Styles is playing in Slane tomorrow. It is a new generation of fans that are going to be coming to Slane. This could be uh, the first concert for some of the attendees that they've ever attended. And so we're delighted that it's going to be Slane that is their uh, rite of passage into live music. Um, <clears throat> there are lots of particularities, uh, particularities about coming to Slane. Uh, the events.ie uh, has been fantastic. I think the communications have been really strong, but that is where you get your information. And you can pick up on all your social channels from there. So I would encourage everyone to do so. That's Alex Mount Charles uh, taking over from uh, the long tradition of his father, Lord Henry, welcoming international music stars to Slane. Uh, Dad is sadly not here today, but he is very much here in spirit. And I can assure you that he is still very much aware of exactly what is going on, as he always has been. And uh, we're hoping he will be here for show day. Uh, but on behalf of the family, you know, we're, as I said, delighted to be back. And indeed, our best wishes to Lord Henry Mount Charles. There is one particular thing I would like to draw attention to. Uh, the River Boyne is a magnificent backdrop for the, big, for the gigs. It flows behind the stage. But do not be fooled. Uh, it is a dangerous river. Um, we have had a lot of rain, although we've had dry weather Underneath that quiet surface, it is a dangerous river. So I would just encourage everyone to please stay away from the river on the day. Um, do, not, do not be fooled. So I cannot emphasize that. Um, you know, it is um, something to be wary of. Admire it from a distance. Look at it. Do not get in it on Saturday. Indeed, do not. And there's very good reason for not getting in it, uh, which Alex didn't mention there. But a number of lives have been lost in the Boyne with uh, people who had hoped uh, to attend concerts in Slane. 1995, uh, the OEM concert. Two kids died in the river. One of them had a ticket in his pocket. In 84, two people died trying to get into Bob Dylan. Um, I think uh, the theory was that, like quite a a lot of people who crossed the river that year, uh, they were trying to bunk in to jump the fence. Um, And I I remember vividly speaking uh, to friends of them uh, how one of uh, the lads went down, uh, whatever way the current was, it grabbed him and he went down. And uh, his friend jumped in to try and get him out. He pulled him out, uh, but went down himself and never came back up. Don't go into the river. 1984, Bob Dylan, actually. uh, I don't know if I'll ever forget that. I don't know if I'll ever forget the riots or the Hell's Angels. 
or Bob Dylan for that matter. My God, he was brutal. One of the worst Bob Dylan concerts I ever saw. And I've seen quite a, a few of them. Um, I remember uh, at the time uh, thinking, yeah, I know the words of that, uh, but I don't know the tune. Morning, it's Mark O'Driscoll from LMFM Radio. What measures have you put in place, um, small village of Slain, but to alleviate the pressure on the village over the weekend? And what has the reaction from local residents been? Has it been largely positive or... Have, have you been met this time round with, I suppose, people not wanting their village taken over for the weekend? You know, Slane as a village has probably grown a little bit um, in terms of some, there are probably some new residents in the village. Um, but the village has always been very supportive of the concerts and, you know, I guess it's what put the name of the village on the map, so to speak. Um, but we have always uh, cooperated well in advance uh, and with the Gardaí's support, we try and limit the disruption as much as we can, but ultimately you have 80,000 people coming to a rural location, and so there have to be some restrictions for the safety of everyone concerned. Uh, but uh, we continue to get uh, a lot of support. I mean, I've, um, uh, I've had nothing really but in encouraging uh, remarks and, and support. I think people are just glad to see Slane back. Um, you know, we haven't done a gig since 2019. So I would uh, say, hand on heart, the village is and always has been behind us. That's Alex Mount Charles uh, speaking to LMFM's Marco Driscoll. It's a sellout concert, so we have over 80,000 people coming to Slane on Saturday. Now, this is Superintendent Martina Noonan. We, have, we will have a major Garda policing plan in operation for the event. And our aim is to keep people safe and to ensure that they enjoy the day. And it is a big event. Policing 85,000 people at a concert is a big challenge for Gardaí. In and around 300 Gardaí will police this event from Friday evening, um, skeleton crew, and there will be a sufficient amount of Gardaí and supervisors throughout the whole day on Saturday. Gardaí say that they'll have one Garda on site for every 280 concert goers. Gates will open at 2pm and early queuing is not permitted. Right, can't understand why that is uh, the case. I mean, what happens if you can't queue early? to go into a field. I mean, I'm not sure why it would make any difference if people queue early, but where will they go? Will they have to stand back and uh, will there uh, be any objection? Or I, mean, I don't know. I'm sure that they know what they're doing, but that uh, seems uh, to be the situation. You can't queue early when you do arrive at the venue. It is going to be a long walk from any car park or bus car park to the actual site. Right, and that's uh, part and parcel of Slane. It's always been one of uh, the problems with concerts at Slane. It's a magnificent venue to see a show in that natural amphitheatre, but access to the venue is dreadful. So dreadful that it is probably only excited teenagers who would put up with uh, the long walks just to go to a concert. We recommend that people will travel by public transport, firstly, or if they're coming by car, that they ensure that they are, um, they use the website to ensure that they park online parking, along with the bus online parking, which is available on events 
Gardaí.ie website. Right, that's the advice from Gardaí for people going to the concert. But uh, for anyone else uh, listening today who isn't going to the concert, uh, there is going to be some disruption for you tomorrow and you may want to plan your journey if you're travelling in the area. All roads leading to Slane will be closed, no true traffic from 7am on Saturday morning. So therefore anybody that needs to be aware of how to get to locations which are either side of Slane, if you log on to the Garda website, all details of our Garda policing plan will be on the website. That's Superintendent Martina Noonan. If you are going to the concert, have a, a great time and look after each other uh, and come home safely. Now to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Paddy Duffy in touch, uh, actually in touch, <laughs> he wasn't in touch uh, about uh, Harry Styles. I'm sure Paddy is a big Harry Styles fan. Uh, but anyway, he says, your last item on child poverty, every time uh, you do an item like that, you're embarrassing the long-established political parties into doing something about it. Keep it up. Eventually it will pay off. Betty Daily in touch too about poverty uh, another big Harry Styles fan I'm sure Betty she says it's different to the 1950s today um, or is it uh, but some people who are third generation of wasters that wouldn't work in a fit have to have everything that's going on they're hard done by while a hard working family can't afford a holiday and just get on with it. Man, thanks indeed uh, for that, Betty, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you want to make comment, as always, we're delighted that you take the time to share your thoughts with us on 0419832000. That's the phone number. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Future ones. Now, a survey of more than 20,000 people who participated in an online consumer panel for the European Parliament in a pilot project uh, by the European Commission's Joint Research Centre in collaboration with the Directorate General for Employment, Social Affairs and Inclusion has resulted in Ireland now becoming officially the most loneliest country in Europe. 20% of respondents in this country say they are lonely. Uh, We're followed by Luxembourg, Bulgaria and Greece. The lowest levels uh, are below 10% in relation uh, to compare it, uh, that is, to that 20% figure in Ireland, below 10% in the Netherlands, Czech Republic, Croatia and Austria. Let's speak to the CEO of Alone, the charity that helps people to age at home alone. Sean Moynihan is uh, the CEO and a very good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Is there any particular reason that you can think of which would make Ireland a, a, a place to be lonelier in than any other European country? I'm, I suppose in some ways we've had, um, you know, the census results were out there the other week. We've had some really big changes in society in the last 20 years. And, you know, the two big shifts are probably the change in family size and the ageing population. And then you add on to that uh, digital, um, where things have moved along, and all of a sudden you end up with a huge amount of people who are lonely. And the reason this is important is because loneliness is linked to depression, poor mental health, and lots of 
diseases, everything from diabetes, cancer, stroke, and even early death. And it is affecting people across all age groups. Mm. So really, this is why this is a public health issue. Now you get a, a lot of people contacting um, your office in uh, alone. You're probably not surprised by the findings of uh, this survey based on what you've been hearing from so many people who don't socialise, who haven't socialised recently or in the last year for that matter. Yeah, I suppose for, for, for us, we, we have huge levels. I mean, for us, the demand for our services to combat loneliness is, is huge. Um, we've uh, several thousand volunteers and we need several thousand more and even then we'll only get to around 10% of the older people are loneliness. But on top of that is, is you know, our own surveys of the older people is, you know, we've, we've over a third of the older people, I think it's around 36% of older people who've contacted us, you know, haven't been, haven't, haven't so made a social connection in the last month, haven't been out socially in the last month and around 10% haven't been out in a year. So these... You know, loneliness. A, I think it's worth repeating those figures, Sean, because they really are shocking. Yeah, I think that that's that's what what what, what with the older people who come to mm. us. That that thing is, and if you take it, we worked with around nineteen thousand people say in the first six months this year. So all across the country, you know, what we have is is around thirty six percent of older people who contacted us that they've not been out and had a social event or connection in a month. And around one in ten said they hadn't been out socially in a year. That's just, and that's yeah. what older people mm. are telling us. But it's backed up by the level of demand for services, the mm. level of demand for our phone services, for our volunteer services. Now we do other things as well, yeah. all these support coordination things. But really, it, it, it's a very difficult, and it's very, loneliness is quite hidden. But you're talking about you know? almost two thousand people who've contacted alone to say that they haven't been out of their house in a year or at least they haven't been socialising they haven't seen anybody ah, yeah. they're, they're, they're obviously they've been to the shops but they're not socially connected they yeah. don't have a social outlet they don't have something they go to or somewhere they go to there's no that stimulation in their good. life yeah it, it, you know loneliness is, 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 is hard to pin down because it's an emotional need you know it's an emotional need you know obviously people mm. being friendly in the neighbourhood is really important like keeping mm. older people connected but what happens then over time is you build up emotional connections mm. and that's what keeps you healthy and well but if they're going to the shop they're not bed bound no no a lot of them oh, most of these people are, 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 are very capable do you know what I mean individuals there, there's no link between loneliness and you know people who are extremely frail but mm. obviously you're more prevalent if you have poor health or you're retired or you're bereaved, your chances of ha- struggling with loneliness are, are, are higher. But I think for, for us is, the big thing for us, we're hoping that this European report and showing that we're unfortunately at the, uh, at the wrong end of this, that ultimately the government has made multiple commitments, you know, in fairness mm. to it. It mm. realises this is an issue. It's sort of in its Healthy Ireland strategy, in its social inclusion strategy, in its programme for government. In all cases, it says it needs a strategy and action plan around loneliness. Mm. And what we want to do is see that done. And there's a loneliness task force, isn't there? Well, yeah, we're part of a loneliness task force. And because it affects young and old, it's ourselves, Disability Federation, care, Family Carers. You've got the likes of Munchen and You've got LGBT Ireland, Trinity. You've got, you've, you've got Jigsaw. Across the whole life course, the Samaritans, all reporting back in their statistics 
all reporting back high levels of loneliness, high levels of anxiety, of depression coming from that loneliness mm. and those poor health outcomes. All And what we're doing is linking what we, the task force linking with all the researchers trying to put evidence-based practice to the government to come up with a strategy. Mm. But I think this report from Europe shows that it's going the wrong way and we need action and we need people to live up to the commitments they've made in, 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 in their strategies. Okay, uh, and... Uh, that's uh, another day's work, if you like, for the moment. I know that you're looking for funding in the upcoming budget uh, to help you to do that. You mentioned a, a moment ago that you're always looking for volunteers. What are, are you asking them to volunteer to do? Well, very, very simply, again, combating loneliness is we're looking for volunteers to volunteer to visit older people, sometimes once or twice a week, and provide them with friendship, with company, and then help them sometimes with practical support or helping them link into social activities in their community. On top of that is is we have phone services where we ring older people sometimes daily, weekly, get up, get dressed, get moving, phone things, keep people motivated, keep them well. So we're looking for volunteers in that area as well. So anybody, there's training, there's guard vetting, but unfortunately with an aging population and with these levels of loneliness, it's hard to keep up and we need as many people as we can get. Okay, what kind of a, a commitment do people have to make, Sean? It's usually around, uh, I'd say, around two, two, two hours a week. What generally happens, though, is, is when somebody's matched or connected to an older person, as that relationship grows, sometimes the commitment grows. So I'd say anything from one to three hours a week. Okay. Do you need to be able to drive or um, does that in sort of matter? In, in most cases, yes, but it depends. We try and match people with somebody in their locality that's far enough away for privacy reasons on both sides, but, but, but close enough that it's convenient. And that, mm. the matching can be the hard thing because you're trying to get people together that have similar interests are within the same background or, or, or area. Mm. But if people don't drive, if they're in urban areas, so there's plenty of ways around that. It'll depend, it, it depends where it is geographically based. Right. I, I don't know. I imagine people listening are as taken aback by the statistics that you gave us uh, this morning. The idea that 2,000 people have contacted uh, alone to say that they're lonely. Uh, is really shocking Um, uh, and I think it must be an incredibly hard thing for people to do uh, which would lead you to believe that there must be an awful lot more people who are in that situation Uh, I think I think you're really I think that's a a brilliant point the reality is is imagine the bravery of being able to distinguish that you're lonely to use that language because sometimes people when they're lonely they're very flat or depressed or they're not motivated and they're not minding themselves or their house and they don't actually realise that it's coming from loneliness Mm. Do you know what I mean? They don't mm. realise that because a lot of the conversations around mental health and it's brilliant, the likes of Jigsaw and all that, have been held in schools, have been held with the teenagers, with the 20s, 30s. Some generations have grown up with these conversations and the language of it's not, it's okay not to be okay. I think for older people, those conversations, that education, and even those services have never yeah. been developed. Yeah, and you have to get on with it. I mean, there's a generation of people uh, who were brought up believing that, uh, and, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. Uh, you just have to get on with it. Uh, but people can call you. Uh, they don't have to say they're lonely. Absolutely not. Look, people come to us. Mm. What we do is help people support for home. So whether it's transport, food, finances, housing issues, health issues, you name it. We work with the older person to resolve. We're like a problem-solving organisation. Somebody comes to us, we do these assessments around different parts of life, and the problems they're facing as defined by them, we help them solve them so they can stay at home. Part of that is 
lots of people come to us because they're lonely and we help them resolve that, whether it's social activity, whether it's leap back to community, where they've maybe fallen out of the community or whether that's via befriending or whether that's through phone services. We work with them to face those challenges that, 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 that they're facing in a way that they're comfortable to do. People can phone alone from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening, seven days a week on 0818 That number is available from the radio station. Sean, thank you for joining us uh, this morning and uh, thanks uh, for the great work that you do in Alone. Sean Moynihan, CEO of Alone. That's our programme for today. Marco O'Driscoll researched uh, Chris was in the control tower and Michael Godwilling will see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reid Show brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity. When Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.